0: Welcome to OT Uncorked, where we uncork hot topics in occupational therapy with a bottle of wine. I'm the host, Miranda Donnelly. And on this episode, just as the last few, we are not uncorking a bottle of wine because I am expecting my first child, and that really plays into the theme of today's episode where we're talking about ability, control, and asking for help. And I'm going to be reflecting on my experiences as a pregnant mama about to deliver. Before we get to that, an update for those of you who have been listening to OT Uncorked for some time and those who are tuning in maybe for the first time. I am 39 weeks and five days pregnant, so I am two days away from the due date. So we are anxiously awaiting the arrival of our son. And he could come any minute now, so we'll see if we can even get through this episode without him starting to make his presence known. You may have heard, I had a previous episode where I talked about my pregnancy with Sarah Putt from OT for Life. That's episode 31 of OT Uncorked, And we were reflecting on pregnancy so far and occupation, identity. It was such a fun episode to record, so... I invite you to go back and take a listen to that episode, and you can hear more from my experiences in the second trimester and Sarah's experience right at the end of her pregnancy. I believe her daughter arrived a week and a half after we recorded the episode. As I've been reflecting on our upcoming due date and just this whole experience of pregnancy, which has been such a whirlwind, feels like it's gone by so fast, I've been reflecting particularly on this last trimester noticing some similarities between what I'm experiencing and some of what our clients might experience. So this episode is from my vantage point. So it's reflections of a almost 40 week pregnant mama who's about to transition from a pregnant mom to mom of a newborn for the first time. However, I really think the concepts that have emerged as I've reflected really do apply to a wider range of people, including some of the folks we serve in our OT practice. So if hearing about my experiences with pregnancy is in any way triggering for you or distressing for you because of your own experiences, it's okay to stop here. I will be talking about pregnancy throughout. Um, And if you're listening and you're thinking, this really doesn't apply to me, I have no interest in hearing another pregnant person's story. I do invite you to give it a chance I'm going to be making connections between some of my experiences from this vantage point with things that I think our clients might be experiencing as well and kind of reflecting on how we can best support them through occupation. So I hope that some of these concepts that I'm going to be talking about are useful to you. So I have three major points of reflection that I'd like to share with you today, and for each one, I'll talk about how it's affected me in pregnancy and then how it might relate to our work as occupational therapy practitioners. And these are not novel concepts, but I do hope that talking about them, looking at them under a new light is useful for you as it was for me. So let's just jump right in. My first reflection has been that our abilities, identity, And purpose are all closely tied to one another. So in my own experience with pregnancy and before pregnancy, I am very much used to being the person who can do it all. And and many of you might be like that as well. So Normally, it's no big deal to work a full day, do things around the house, maybe go on a walk or hang out with friends. Pre-COVID, I might go out and participate in different community groups. I was really active with my church and community. I was always doing a lot. I would go to bed late, wake up, and repeat, and I seemed to be able to do that. Well, third trimester, and even part of second trimester, was really tough. I realized that now I need to take breaks, even just during my workday. Thankfully, I do work remotely a lot of the time, and that is definitely a perk that not everybody in our field has. So by the end of the workday, even with these breaks, I'm still sometimes exhausted. I'm definitely swollen everywhere, and I just need to rest. And so that really limits what I can be using my evenings for. A few other reflections on this idea of ability and things I'm no longer able to do or do differently now. For example, simple things like getting my lower half dressed by myself. I can do it most days. Some days I have to call in for backup. Thankfully, my husband is is ready and willing to help out. Um, or it just takes a lot longer or more energy or I need to take more breaks. And that's something that's new to me. Uh, thinking about dressing was not something I had to do before. It just was something I did naturally and took for granted. Carrying around An extra human, um, believe it or not, it makes it harder to stand for a while to do things. Some of you may know this if you've been pregnant before. I really have to time any kind of housework I'm doing, so I'm not really standing for more than about 20 minutes. And from a cognitive perspective, I've noticed my abilities change too. For example, if I don't write it down, odds are good I'd forget to do it. And so my coworkers have been wonderfully adaptive to this and know to message me. Or send me something in writing, or make sure I'm taking notes, or they take notes for me. So we've, we've been able to adapt, but I will say adjusting to having different abilities is certainly something about pregnancy I hadn't really thought about before. Again, on this note, and then we'll get to how this relates to our clients, but a few other examples, uh, some reflections from my own experience. You may remember from episode 31 that I mentioned we're doing a major house renovation and I feel lately that I have not been able to help much. So for example, a few weeks ago, we ripped up the old gross carpet in what's going to be our baby's nursery. Very exciting because there's original hardwood floors underneath. And so we spent a few hours in the evening pulling up the old carpet staples and nails. And I have to admit, I was sore even before I went to bed. You know. In the past, if I was going to be sore, I probably would feel fine until the morning, you know, and you wake up kind of stiff. Well, I felt that way even before I went to bed. And so then for the next two days, it felt truly like my lower back, my hips and my legs were all fused together. I was so uncomfortable. Um, so we've kind of shifted a little bit. So I'm not really helping with a lot of the physical labor. Instead, I'm doing a lot of phone calling and scheduling of contractors who are helping us out, that is definitely a change in ability for me. And rationally, I know that scheduling and making phone calls is a huge part of the process and are really important tasks. And my husband affirms me and appreciates me taking on this role. I'm more of an extrovert, and so calling people takes less energy for me, and I'm happy to do it. So I know it's important, and yet not being able to help with things like demolishing our old plaster and lath walls, or ripping up carpet, or moving furniture, is hard for me. And this is where the identity piece comes in. It's not just about being able to do something or not do something. Our abilities are so closely tied with our identity. And the thing is, I never actually wanted to do the whole project. From an ability perspective, I'm okay with just helping a little bit. Maybe spending a weekend working on it, that probably would have filled my bucket enough and I would be happy to pass the baton to my husband or to our contractors. But it's the knowing that I really can't do any of those manual labor tasks that brings into question my identity as someone who can and is willing to do it all, who wants to get her hands dirty, to get messy, to take something broken uh, and old and make it beautiful. And so that is where this change in ability has really struck my identity in a way I didn't fully expect. For me at this point, I know that in about a week or so, I'm not going to be pregnant anymore. My body will start the healing process. It'll continue to change and evolve and it's not necessarily going to go back to where it was before, but I do know that there's a new stage of strength on the horizon where I will eventually be able to participate in these occupations again, and my identity and my abilities will be more closely aligned. And, you know, I'll be facing new challenges as a mom of a newborn, and then, you know, more and unique challenges as a mom of a toddler. Throughout our life and seasons of life, there's always going to be changes to our capacity and to our abilities, and our identity will shift as well. But I think the point in me sharing this is that I know this current change for me is temporary. It's so temporary. This temporary change that seems hard some days will literally be bringing new life into the world. So there is clear beauty in the challenge. There is clear beauty that in the changes in my abilities, there's also growth there's something that uniquely my body can do that not everybody's body can do that my husband's body can't do i'm growing a human it's incredible and even with that knowledge and that awe and wonder my identity has still felt somewhat threatened and changed and my sense of purpose in the household has been changed and challenged and and this also then comes in where we talk about self-worth so we've we've built on this idea that we have changes in abilities And that change in ability can affect our identity. And then when our identity is challenged or shifted, we start to maybe question our self-worth, where we see our own value as a contributing member of our families, our communities, our places of employments, our groups of friends. And so one change in ability or a handful of changes in abilities really does have the power to kind of snowball and affect identity and self-worth, which are so deep, close, and personal to us. And and when those change, we become so vulnerable. And so I wanted to share that reflection. This has had me thinking a lot about the people I work with. In my experience, it's people who have chronic disability due to a severe stroke or some other kind of brain injury. So now I'd like to shift a little bit and talk about how I think this concept applies to the work we do. So when I started reflecting on this connection between abilities, identity, self-worth, and purpose, especially in the third trimester of pregnancy, I couldn't help but think of Wilcox's doing, being, becoming, and belonging framework uh, to think about occupation and all of these constructs. In Wilcox's model, each of these constructs builds on one another. At the base is this idea of doing. This idea that what we do influences how we exist, who we are, who we're becoming, and where and with whom we belong. So for me, not being able to do the activities I did before pregnancy has influenced how I live out my role as wife, employee, researcher, friend, neighbor, community member, sister, daughter, etc., and therefore, it's affected how I belong in those groups I just named in different settings. As I mentioned, for me, pregnancy is a beautiful temporary season. I am trying to soak in the beauty of it now and the goodness of it. And when my child comes, I will be very glad to pass through to the next season and enjoy what, what that season has to offer. But for many of our clients, particularly a lot of the folks I work with, there isn't a clear end in sight for when they can do what they did before or do what they want to do in their futures. A lot of times I'm actually working with folks who've had strokes five or ten years ago even, and many of them still have such hope about the future. In case this isn't a population you've worked with much, I'll just give you an example. I was just the other day talking with someone who had a stroke six years ago. They're in their late 60s. They use a wheelchair, um, still have pretty severe disability, particularly hemiparesis in their arm. And they said, I'm not back to snowboarding yet, but I'm so excited to get out there in the powder. I'm a really good snowboarder and layered in that simple statement within the context of their story that they were telling me. I saw that on one hand, they had incredible hope that was driving them forward and motivating them to keep pushing through the challenge. And then on the other hand, I had to wonder if that level of attachment to their previous abilities was in some way stopping them from experiencing a sense of being in this current state that they were experiencing. And if so... Did that give them any trouble envisioning who they're becoming as they continue to progress through life? Does this person feel they belong in their current social environment if the people around them aren't performing to the level he hopes to attain? Is this approach a protective mechanism or is it positive thinking? Is it creative visualization? Is it just hope? And in these types of situations, which I'm finding are coming up a lot in my setting, My intuition is just to support the goal of getting back to whatever activity or moving forward to a new activity, whether that's snowboarding, driving, walking, doing home renovation, playing a sport. And I don't offer the guarantee of strong assurance that it will happen, but I do try to affirm their experiences, asking about their past experiences with the occupation, like what's the best trail you've ever snowboarded or what would your next road trip be? And even then, I question the best ways to support people when that harmony between their abilities, their identity, and purpose is disrupted. And pregnancy has just given me a tiny, tiny glimpse into this experience, but not in the same way the people I work with experience it. What my reflections just now have truly brought up more questions than answers, so I would love to know your thoughts on this too. So what do you see as the connection between abilities, identities, and purpose? There's so much to unwrap here and so I would love to talk more and keep pursuing these ideas together. So if you have thoughts, feel free to message me on Instagram or comment on a post, send me an email. I would love to continue these conversations because my reflections I feel like have just started to scratch the surface of some ideas that I'd love to explore more in the context of the people I serve. So my first reflection was that our abilities, identity, and purpose are closely tied. So as part of my second reflection, I'd like to take a look at how I've been coping with that. And as a very pregnant mama, something that has been brought to my own awareness is that in in life when our abilities and our identity and purpose are challenged, we can often seek control to fill our the voids. So, just briefly in my experience, going back to that renovation, if you've ever managed multiple contractors or multiple Employees, or you know, in any of your experiences, if you've been kind of managing multiple people, you know, it can be a full time job, and this is why we have people such as general contractors and project managers whose legitimately full time job is to do this and to manage people and schedules and timelines and projects. And so, as part of this, when I think about how we can fill voids when our identities challenged and our abilities are different. I see that this is perhaps a way I am actually trying to seek control is by managing all of this. And it is it is a lot of work, but I find myself trying to fill that void through that control. Now, you may have heard that pregnant women will do something called nesting, and I really didn't believe it. I had heard about it, but I thought it was one of those things people say, but... It's not really founded in anything or any kind of real experience. However, this idea of nesting, this idea that women who are expecting babies and, and par- other parents as well, it's not just the person carrying the baby, will kind of nest, just like a bird would nest, kind of create this perfect environment for their child. A lot of times it looks like um, putting together a nursery, organizing um, Putting together a pile of things to donate, just making the home kind of that perfect place so you feel comfortable and confident bringing home your child to that space. Not that the baby actually needs it, but it's a it's kind of a a requirement that comes with the territory um, of being pregnant. I, I think there's something hormonal about it that's potentially evidence based, but I didn't really believe it. Well, because of our renovation, I have not been able to prep the nursery, and again, we're doing two days. We just got walls up this week. We had completely demoed to do insulation, kind of started from scratch in that room, new electrical, everything. My husband just finally was able to put the layer of primer on today. So very excited. We're getting closer to having finished walls. Um, But up until kind of this week, I will not have been able to prep or baby proof the rest of the house. Our living and dining room are also undergoing the same major renovation of new walls, refinished floors our whole house is just kind of torn up right now. And our garage has gotten the brunt of it. That's where we've been putting all of our stuff. And that is the place where I feel I can have control. So the garage has gotten reorganized multiple times. It still doesn't look great. So there's more nesting to be done. And the other place that has really gotten my nesting uh, energy is Ikea. I've gone to Ikea multiple times to look for storage solutions and just to wander and envision. And this is my form of nesting. And As this relates to these reflections, it's my way of seeking control to fill a void where my abilities and my identity are challenged, to where my purpose is challenged as well. And I'm trying to find new purpose. And currently, IKEA and the garage are getting most of that attention. I even see this in uh, my workflow in my day job. For work, I've made so many schedules for, for different people, for participants coming in for research uh, with my coworkers to help manage availability. I have been very much focused on those details. Um, we have family who are hopefully going to be able to come visit from out of town to help us with the baby. And so I have been creating spreadsheets to coordinate who's coming when and where they're staying. All of these unnecessary schedules that I'm sure we, we just don't need. So those are some of the ways that I have tried to seek control to fill voids. And so now I'd like to shift to talking about, in these reflections about my own experience, what have I observed that I think might relate to the work we do with our clients? So many of our clients with acquired illness or disability might be adjusting to having these perceived voids in their abilities. Maybe they used to be able to do everything and anything they wanted, and now there's voids in their abilities. And so that begs the question: you know, what can they do to assert some element of control and autonomy? And so I just want to share a few ways I've seen this played out, but I know that each of you could add to the list given your own experience and your practice area. So these are just a few. This is not at all comprehensive. So, in my experience, I have had clients that might be described by some as maybe bossy or a bit rude or a bit short. And these are some of the folks that might just kind of grumble and complain about every activity we're doing in therapy. Even if it's something that yesterday they were excited about or as excited as someone like this might show, they sounded at least interested in it. And then the day you're actually doing the activity, it seems like everything is going wrong for them. We might have a client who comes across as kind of picky For example, in an inpatient rehab setting or a home setting where they can wear their own clothes, maybe they don't want to wear the first shirt that's easiest for them to grab from the closet. Even though that's what they packed for their stay, they might want us to help them tear apart their whole room looking for that one shirt or that one pair of pants, and they will not start therapy until they find that item of clothing. Another way I've seen it played out is folks who refuse therapy. A, a really sad case, actually, that I remember was working with a gentleman who had a C3 spinal cord injury. So for those of you that don't work with spinal cord injury, this is one of the more severe injuries. Not everybody survives this kind of injury. Um, and he was, in, he was in pretty rough shape. But he would not let us or any of the nurses or doctors turn him in bed to prevent pressure ulcers. Uh, he didn't want to be changed, even though he was incontinent of bladder and bowel. He didn't want to be fed, even though he could not feed himself. And this was a really extreme case. Um, I know we see refusals for all sorts of reasons, but when I was reflecting, this particular individual came to mind for me of just all the ways that in this void, in this major life disruption he experienced, he wanted control over something. And even though from the outside, we saw that some of this controlling behavior was really not in his best interest. This was what he could do. This is how he could practice agency and autonomy. And so, yeah, that that example came up to mind for me as I was reflecting on this idea of of seeking control when when our abilities are compromised. We can also see this played out With clients who want to change the environment and context we're in. So, for example, uh, for someone who's an inpatient, they might ask to switch rooms. If we're in a therapy gym environment, they might ask to switch tables or areas of the space for whatever reason they come up with. They might ask for a new therapist, even if we think we're doing a great job and we're not quite sure why, they might just want to exercise that control and change the context and make a choice for a new therapist. They might cancel an appointment or show up late. Some clients might, it might feel like they're purposefully making us wait on them or wait for them to start. And I think a lot of these behaviors, these these choices that clients are making, uh, these ways that they're exercising control can be really frustrating as a therapist, especially if this is happening frequently or it feels like a pattern, not just with one person, but across our practice. If we feel like, this is happening with a lot of our clients. It can be really frustrating. I know plenty of therapists have vented about this being an issue, and it can really disrupt our own workflow. Given some of these reflections, and again, mine, my reflections are on third trimester of pregnancy. It is so temporary. It is so temporary. And the experiences of so many of our clients um, are chronic, and long-lasting experiences. So I I don't want anyone to think for a second I'm I'm truly comparing my experience to someone who um, has one of these more life-altering disabilities or, or injuries or experiences. But I do want to shed some light on maybe just, again, that glimpse that I've gotten of wanting to have control when other things are compromised. And I just want to challenge us all that instead of being confused by their behavior or annoyed by what can really inconvenience our day, I want us to realize that we have the opportunity to see these actions and these interactions through our occupational lens and understand our clients' needs at a deeper level. So for example, maybe refusing to participate in therapy is the mechanism at play. That's the behavior, that's the thing we're observing. But if we can kind of view the whole picture And we can sometimes see it's actually a mechanism of control or agency. When I say control, I know a lot of times it's really seen as negative, but I really, when I use the word control, I'm thinking sort of autonomy, agency, doing something that we can actually influence change with. And exercising control is not a personality flaw. And them exercising control in the context of therapy is not a personal attack on us. What I really think we're seeing is a person who's trying to navigate a scenario in which their autonomy, choice, and freedom have been warped. Maybe they feel it's been taken away from them. And feeling this way can leave any of us grasping at straws for whatever control we can maintain. You might be able to think of examples in your own life of ways where you didn't have control over much and so the little bit you could hold on to. You may have really fixated on. I already shared some of my own examples, so I know that can be true for me as well. So what can we do about this? Um, I don't have all the answers, but I do think that awareness is a great first step. Seeing some of these behaviors through the lens of ability, identity, control... All of this in the context of each person's unique client factors and personal context can help us have some more compassion and help us move forward as our clients' partners in their care, as opposed to feeling like they are somehow personally inconveniencing us or attacking us. And I think we can also find other ways for them to have control and autonomy in meaningful ways. A lot of times in our current healthcare system, particularly in the U.S., I think Healthcare frequently means people are doing things to patients. Professionals are in positions of control doing things to patients. Some examples would be you're giving a patient medication. You're getting them out of bed. You're performing a procedure on them or talking to them about their condition. But in occupational therapy, we can be very natural in our way of allowing choice and control. And so I just want to reflect on some of these ways that some of them I've tried Sometimes I know I've fallen short and I haven't quite leaned into these as much. So I thought they were worth a little more reflection on my part and I hope they help you in some way as well. So a few things I think we can do is one, we can present multiple options for each therapy session rather than coming in with a set treatment plan. I think a lot of us do this pretty well. Um, It does require a little bit more upfront work, but I think as we continue to work with the same people, we can uh, plan ahead with them so that what we're preparing for that session is something they have chosen. We can also ask our clients to choose where we do therapy within the constraints of our setting. So in some settings, we are very limited. In an inpatient psych unit, for example, you might have very limited choices. But even asking which table they want to sit at or which room they want to sit in or work in, um, if you're in a setting that allows you to go into the community, giving options in the community and kind of opening up those doors to new ways of doing therapy that maybe don't fit the typical model. We can also give them input on when therapy happens. So if they're not a morning person, maybe we can schedule them for the afternoon. I know this is something that particularly an inpatient, we can have a little bit more control over our schedules. So let's keep in mind those client, that client's personal factors. Ask them when they'd like to do therapy and try to make our schedule around them. And, and I think this is so important. This idea that we can set the whole tone for a therapeutic relationship by involving them In goal setting. So, yes, we of course are going to take into account what they say into their goals, right? That's a, a key tenant of goal setting in occupational therapy. But what I've realized is that our clients don't always understand that we have taken into account what they say into their goals. So, what if instead of just listening to them and then making goals separately, what if we said something like, I'm hearing you say that, for example, getting back to volunteering at the shelter is really important to you. I want to make sure your therapy goals are helping you make progress towards that. Can we talk about some of the steps that will help you get there? And then, even those bottom-up goals that you suggest are all in the context of occupation for them. Of course, they're already in the context of occupation for us. We are. We sometimes, I think, we take for granted the way our OT brains work that we make the connections between bottom-up goals to their occupations, to their stated interest and their preferred occupations. I think for us, those connections are all so tight. And for our clients, I don't think they always realize how we're approaching goal setting. I think, too, connecting it with occupation, you know, it's not just so that the insurance um, provider can read the goal sheet and see that it's occupation based, but it's really for them to have a sense of what are we really working towards in therapy and giving them that control to alter the path and the treatment plan and the goals. I would love to know, though, what you do to enable choice in your clients. Not just choice within a therapy session, um, but how do you empower them to make choices when they leave therapy, when they go home, when you leave for the day and they're left with the other health professionals and with family members? How are we empowering them? I would love to know what you do because I have so much to learn in this area as well. And if you let me know, maybe we can even talk about it on the podcast or just on social media, but I would love to hear more about these ideas. So my first reflection was that our abilities, identity, and purpose are closely tied. And my second reflection was that we often seek control to fill voids, especially when those abilities, identities, and purpose are challenged or threatened in some way. And when we experience voids and we start to seek control, we start to exercise whatever control we still have, people on the outside often wonder, or they might even say aloud to us, why don't you just ask for help? Or they might say something like, I could have helped you with that. And that leads me to my third and final reflection for this episode, and that's that asking for and accepting help is really challenging. So let's come back to my vantage point currently as a almost due pregnant mama, very pregnant mama. Earlier, I mentioned a few of the occupations and activities that I'm currently unable to do, whether because of pregnancy-related exhaustion, Uh, some of the lifting precautions to protect baby and me, Uh, my joints becoming more lax in preparation for childbirth, the gigantic belly I'm wearing, or exposure to materials that aren't good for me and baby. And despite knowing that something will be hard or that I can't do something or there's some restriction, it's in my personality to keep trying. And sometimes that backfires. So just a little pregnancy fun fact in pregnancy there's this hormone called relaxin that's produced and it helps loosen some of the ligaments in preparation for birth that's what i was talking about with the lax joints that i'm experiencing what that means is that these round ligaments that support my large belly and keep baby nice and safe in there can get pulled really easily so if i want to lean over to pick something up from the floor repeatedly or i'm you know picking up laundry or something I sometimes get a quick sharp pain and then a dull reminder that I should not do that anymore. And so a couple weeks ago, I was looking for a yogurt cup in the fridge, you know, like the little ones you kind of peel off the lid and they're kind of small. So sometimes they get shoved to the back, so I couldn't find it. And so I thought, oh, it's probably in the bottom shelf. And so I got on my hands and knees to check. Um, we have one of the older style fridges where the freezer's on top. And so I, I actually had to get on the floor to see the bottom shelf of our refrigerator. And I found it. But then I realized I, I really might be stuck on the floor. I tried three or four times to get up using different fall strategies, you know, being the good OT I'm trying to be. And finally, I found something that worked. But for a few moments there, I was thinking, what am I going to do? I can't get up from this floor. Where is my husband? And can I call him to help me get up off the floor? There's, of course, lots more that I have trouble doing, and uh, much of it I know my husband would be happy to do for me if only I would ask for help. And that is really what this reflection point is all about. Why do we have such trouble asking for help? Maybe you're someone who has really worked on this and you have great confidence in asking for help and understanding where the boundaries of your abilities exist. And if so, contact me. I would love to learn from you. I am very much still in development in this area. And this idea of why we have trouble asking for help led me to reflect on that a little bit further. What are the reasons I have trouble asking for help? And so for one, I feel like an inconvenience. I think this is a common reason. Um, And I know that whether it's my husband or coworker or a friend, that they have something else they're probably already doing. And to ask for help would mean asking them to stop what they're doing Come over to me, have me explain what I'd like to be done, help me, and then transition back to what they're doing. I really want to respect their mental load and their time. But what's interesting about this excuse, this excuse of inconveniencing the other person, is that when you're on the other side of things, it never feels like a big deal, right? So when a friend has had a tough workout or a family member sick, I have no problem stopping what I'm doing to help get them a glass of water or um, bring them their phone that they set down across the room before they sat down. I do that all the time. It does not phase me at all to help. But being on the receiving side of help, we can feel like an inconvenience. I was trying to figure out why else I might have trouble asking for help. And another reason I came up with is that I think sometimes we have a mismatch between our actual abilities and our perceived abilities. Sometimes I really do think I can put on my own compression socks and shoes on my massively swollen mama feet. And I try really hard until either I maneuver them on. And um, I'll tell you what, if somebody were watching, it would be quite a sight. I don't know if you've ever donned compression socks on yourself or someone else. But it is quite a task. It's very challenging. And then when you have a giant belly in your way and your feet are already swollen, next level okay. But I also sometimes just reach a point where I'm so exhausted from trying to put them on, I just don't wear them. Or I finally call in back up once I'm out of breath and sore. Maybe even I've pulled a muscle. If I really think I can do something, why would I ask for help up front? Why wouldn't I keep trying to do it myself? Now, that was asking for help, but I think that accepting help is slightly different and maybe has some different um, baggage with it. When we ask for help, we're initiating the interaction, right? But when we accept help, an offer has been extended to us and we just need to allow the help to happen. But this can be hard too, probably for some of the similar reasons as asking for help. So this is an area I've been growing in as well, lots of growth during this time of my life. Knowing that I won't ask for help as often as I should, my husband and friends have become so good at anticipating my pregnancy needs and will often offer to help before I need to ask. So, for example, if my husband notices my water glass is empty, he'll grab his and fill both of them up. He probably fills up both so that I don't feel bad. I also it makes me wonder if he's been better hydrated since I got pregnant because he's filling up with both glasses all the time. <laughs> he knows to offer to take over cooking. For example, if I'm cooking dinner that night and he sees me waddling around the house after a long day, or if I start doing dishes and I don't ask for help, he'll kind of jump in and take over so that I don't actually need to accept the help. He's just kind of jumping in and and being a partner in that task asking for and accepting help in pregnancy has definitely been hard for me. It's always been hard for me even pre-pregnancy, but there's new levels of challenge as we've been talking about through these different reflections. And so I am growing and I am allowing myself to be served by others just as I want to serve them when they need it too. But reflecting on this idea, I've been thinking a lot about the people we work with who don't have a clear end in sight. Again, coming back to this idea that in pregnancy, I know I won't be pregnant in about a week. For some folks, There is no end in sight for when they will be able to to start returning to some of their previous activities. And so for me, it's easier for me to let my husband help me because, you know, dads can't do a whole lot for the first nine months of of a baby's life when they're in the womb. He can help the baby indirectly by helping me be nourished and rested. And that's a role he can take on. Even my family and friends have the added benefit of getting to be a grandparent or aunt to whom I'm assuming is going to be a pretty cool child. And so them helping me in these nine months is so generous and kind of them. And they also get that reward of being able to be part of this child's life. But for some people who are experiencing long-term disability, this rationalization may not exist. There might not be an equivalent. And so I just want to share a little bit more about my thoughts on this and how it applies to our practice as occupational therapists. I think that our patients sometimes may have a really hard time asking for help and accepting help. In inpatient uh, phys rehab settings, for example, which is a setting I'm familiar with, We might get a page or read a note in the chart that our patient who requires, let's say, moderate assistance and a walker decided to get out of bed in the middle of the night without help, and they fell. Not an uncommon thing to have happen. And I've never practiced in pediatrics, so forgive me if this is not a great example. and Feel free to correct me and offer a better one. But when I've spent time around kids, sometimes I notice they won't ask for help, Um, let's say, opening their snack or a bin of toys. And after a while of trying, there's a few different responses. Some will give up and move on to something else. Or the snack or toy bin will finally open and it just explodes everywhere, which is so frustrating. I've done that too. And I I tend to say things like, oh, why didn't you ask for help? Uh, other kids might have different reactions. They might start crying or throwing the item. Maybe it's a cry for help. They, they want assistance but don't know how to ask for help. Um, because asking for help is really, really hard. And to ask for help means that we have acknowledged a weakness or a gap in our abilities. And beyond that, we have shared that vulnerably with others. So I'm still trying to brainstorm the best ways to support clients. They know they can ask for help and feel confident and comfortable asking us for help. So I have a few ideas, but I would love to hear what yours are too, because I think this is something we can all keep reflecting on, just the best ways to support clients and allow them to, again, have control. Instead of seeing asking for help as a weakness, they can see it as a way of practicing their agency, practicing that control that so many of us deeply desire. So here's a few ideas I have, but again, let's add to the list and keep this conversation going. So for example, when I have a patient who has some sort of craft, um, for example, if they're a plumber, an electrician, a carpenter, some other craftsperson, I'll ask them to share their expertise. So if I actively have a problem in our house or something I'm thinking about doing, I'll ask them their opinion. And if I don't um, have an issue, I'll ask them a routine maintenance question so I know how to care for a system in my home or how to fix up a piece of furniture, whatever it is that their passion, whether professional or, or hobby is. Another example would be with my patients who are married or have children. I love to ask for marriage advice or parenting advice from them. Uh, a lot of times I'll ask, what's the secret to being married for 50 years or whatever it is that they've been able to accomplish? If I'm working with a student, I'll ask them about their field of study and just show genuine interest and ask real questions that I care about knowing the answer to. Ways to, that they can really share their expertise with me. If I'm working with an athlete, I'll ask them to explain their sport to me. They tend to get a kick out of this because I know so little about sports, so it's a bit of an added bonus that I can genuinely ask these questions and they know I'm not just trying to fluff them up. I I genuinely don't understand. One time I was working with a really high-up executive and he was struggling with being in the hospital because he had always been a leader and a mover. Nothing ever stopped him until his injury. And so with him It was so clearly difficult for him to be in a hospital bed and in a wheelchair and his schedule being directed by other people as opposed to directing his own schedule. So for him, I asked him his leadership advice, um, what he imagined for the future of his industry. I would ask him other questions that let him showcase all the skills and knowledge he still had in a way that was really just also feeding my curiosity. So it was a very genuine interaction, but gave him an opportunity to share. And in all of these examples, in addition to just gaining great advice, which I'll tell you what patients and clients have given me some fantastic advice and input. What I'm essentially saying in these examples is you have life experience and insights that are super valuable. Would you share them with me? It lets me acknowledge their unique skills, roles, knowledge, experience, And in a lot of cases, I find that they are more open to asking me for help or accepting help when I offer because it has been an exchange. And I think there's something really human about this kind of exchange. We can support each other, fill in gaps for one another where needed. And I think in our current healthcare system, at least in the U.S., we're missing that. We're missing that exchange. But I think that we as occupational therapy practitioners can bring that humanness back. So here I am. I am almost 40 weeks pregnant, kicking back with my swollen feet elevated, and I've been reflecting on some of the nuances of pregnancy that also have applications to the experience of maybe being a client in a therapy setting. And here are the three major takeaways that I talked about today. One, our abilities, identity, and purpose are closely tied. Two, we often seek control to fill voids where our abilities, identity, and purpose have been challenged or changed. And three, asking for and accepting help is really challenging. None of these are new ideas, but I do hope that this episode gave you something that will help as you work with clients who are dealing with all sorts of conditions and illnesses and life situations, disruptions there is so much happening beneath the surface and we are uniquely positioned as occupational therapy practitioners to identify these areas and dig deeper with our clients to really see how we can best support them and how we can help restore people's ability to make choice to have control and as part of that making choices about how they want to ask for help and accept help something i'll be working on in a few moments is asking for help and accepting help getting out of this chair. (laughs) As I just mentioned, I am just two days away from my due date. And so life's about to be turned upside down, but OT Uncorked is not stopping. We have some great episodes lined up for the next few months. I'll just give you a little preview of two topics that you can be on the lookout for. One, as we start a new school year, whether as a professional student, as a pediatric school-based therapist, as a parent to a child who's in school, we have an episode about homeschooling. This episode's about how OTs can support homeschooling families. And even if this is not a practice area of interest to you, I think you should still listen to this interview and hear about just all the wonderful ways that OTs can support these families and and just some some kind of some background about homeschooling. We can learn about uh, some of the different kind of culture of homeschooling. So it's a great episode, and I hope you'll take a listen. We also have coming up an episode about maternal health OTs. So how can OTs support moms? I promise not all of our episodes are going to be about moms and children, but these seemed like really appropriate topics. One, homeschooling you know in this fall, beginning of the new school year, and the maternal health OT concept being so interesting to me right now in this season of life. And so I hope you'll keep a lookout for these episodes. If you don't want to miss them, make sure you're subscribed. You can subscribe on whatever podcast app you are currently using to listen to the episode. And if right now you're just eager to listen to another episode but one hasn't come out yet, I'd love to give you two recommendations on what to revisit. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Sarah Putt from OT for Life and I did an episode together. It's episode 31. It's about pregnancy, identity and occupational transition. Some reflections from my second trimester early on and Sarah's reflections just before she had her baby. It's a bit of a long episode, but It was so wonderful to talk with her, and there's so much about pregnancy that people don't talk about, and so it was so refreshing to be able to have that vulnerable and open conversation on the podcast so we can all learn from each other and be more open as we all want to support each other and our clients. Another one I would recommend revisiting is episode 32. This one is what OTs need to know about student loan planning. And I brought on a student loan planning expert, Megan Landress, and she was so insightful about how we can best support ourselves through paying off student loans. And I know many of us do have student loans to pay off. You may have heard recently in the news that the government actually postponed um, the pause on student loan interest and payments until the end of January 2022. So originally they kept pushing back the dates and then they said September, end of September, that's going to be it they've extended it until the end of January and they're saying this really is it so we all need to be prepared but Megan gives us so much practical advice on how to be prepared so if you haven't listened to that episode and you have student loans or someone in your family has student loans listen to her advice she's so wonderful Um, and that is episode 32. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of OT Uncorked and for joining me in this discussion as I reflect uh, just in the last few days of my pregnancy. I hope you enjoyed this episode, maybe took something away from it and are in some way feeling uh, more reflective about the experiences our clients might be having as they have changes to their abilities and identities and purpose as they try to seek control and as they navigate the really, really difficult challenge of asking for and accepting help. I would love to connect with you online. I'm on Instagram at OT Uncorked, Facebook at OT Uncorked, and Twitter at the same handle. Or you can reach out to me directly at email, miranda at otuncorked.com. I would love to connect, and thank you again for being part of this community. Cheers!